King Hezekiah. Because 2 Kings 18.5 says, quote, There was no one like him of all the kings of Judah, either before him or after. Finally, some godly leadership in the nation. But as you follow the story, you'll see that even the best leaders are faced with some of the toughest problems. And that's important for us to keep in mind. You, like me, may may, may sense that we're in a day where we lack good leadership, whether it's for the nation, for the world, for the home. We need more for the church. We need more godly leaders. No doubt. And it's not wrong to pray for such. But it's a huge mistake to ever think. This is what we can be guilty of stepping into. If we can get the right leaders in place, everything about our future will be secure and the conditions of our land will prosper and improve. Not necessarily. You see, as soon as King Hezekiah entered office, he faced three great problems that you find leading up to this chapter. Number one, he faced the overwhelming enemy in the north, the power of Assyria that just kept growing stronger and stronger and stronger until one of their most aggressive and wicked leaders came into power named Sennacherib. And he invaded the northern part of Israel, devastated it, scattered it, and that means now that this wicked superpower was knocking on the door of all that remained of this little two-tribe state called Judah. Number two, Hezekiah himself became deathly ill during his reign. And the word of the Lord assured him that he was going to die until he cried out to God, begging God for additional life, and God granted him 15 more years. But number three, there was a problem. The king of Babylon, who was not at that time a great power, heard about Hezekiah's illness, sent messengers with letters and a gift, and Hezekiah foolishly showed them all the treasures of Jerusalem and everything in his palace. And God sent the prophet Isaiah to him to say, King Hezekiah, you've made a desperate mistake. Because this nation that you think is your friend, Babylon, is actually going to plunder you and carry everything you have away to Babylon, including some of your very own descendants. In other words, the prophet Isaiah tells Hezekiah, you've been so worried about the nation of Assyria, when frankly God is going to bring that nation to an end, as He often does throughout history. And what's actually going to happen is this insignificant nation called Babylon is going to rise up and completely destroy you and bring an end to Jerusalem in a way that's going to impact your own descendants for generations to come. Imagine hearing this message for the first time. That the future for the next 50 to 100 years is not going to be what you would hope for. It's not going to be freedom, but oppression. And imagine knowing that it's the Word of the Lord bringing you this bad news, not just some conjecture or speculation by a committee of men and women. The Word of the Lord is bringing this bad news. And within three generations, it happened, just as Isaiah prophesied it would. In 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marched on Jerusalem reduced the city to rubble, deported most of the able people, leaving the rest to a scavenger life in a city with no walls. So this great chapter of the Bible, Isaiah 40, that so many of us know and love so well, was actually written to a group of people who have just received some of the most devastating news that the future is not going to be what you would hope for. Isn't that how it happens so often for us here in this life? Your future and my future can change dramatically with one piece of devastating news that you didn't see coming and you have no power to change. I didn't see that coming. There is no fix. I have no power to change this. Maybe that's where you are today. 
Something has happened in your life. I don't know if it's financial, if it's health, if it's relational, if it's vocational. Something's happened in your life that there is no fix for this now. But it's changed how you're probably going to live the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, maybe the rest of your life. What do you do when something like that happens? Something comes into your life you didn't see coming, you have no power to change, and there's no fix. That's what's going on when God spoke this message through Isaiah to the people of God. And so I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Isaiah. When God gives him this assignment, imagine this assignment. God says to Isaiah now, I want you to comfort these my people. I'm sure Isaiah was thinking, God, in light of all you've already had me say, chapters 1 to 39, with all the judgment and bad news, what could I possibly say that would bring any kind of comfort? Isaiah chapter 40 is the answer. Because Isaiah chapter 40 puts on display the sovereignty of God and reminds us that God sits enthroned over all the events of history, including those that impact your life right now and my life right now. So that no matter what happens in our national life or in your personal life, a sovereign God controls it all for His glory and our good. So now I invite you to stand with me as we read this great chapter, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. He said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. O Zion. You who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and His arms shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work before Him. He will feed His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, 
He lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before Him are as nothing. And they're counted by Him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? What likeness will you compare to Him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. The silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when He will also blow on them and they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things who bring he's talking about the galaxies and stars who brings out their host by number he calls them all by name by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power not one is missing why do you say O jacob and speak O israel my way is hidden from the lord and my just claim is passed over by my god have you not known Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall rise up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The Word of the Lord. You may be seated. So what does God say to people who've been shattered by national or personal circumstances? Well, we could dig into this great chapter for weeks. But I just want to point out what I think are two of the most important takeaways we can get here. Number one, you must know who your God is in the midst of shattering circumstances. Oh, don't hear me. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Knowing God is never optional. Because we're created in His image, life does not make sense until you begin to understand and reframe it with the fact that there is a real personal God and that we're created in His image. Changes everything about how you view what's going on. Knowing God is never optional. But it is essential when you're facing shattering circumstances. It's essential. Which is why notice four times in this great chapter. Four times. He calls us to behold something about God. Look at it again in verse 9. Behold. Verse 10. Behold. Verse 15. Behold. And then in verse 26, He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who. Not what. Who. Who has created this universe? Listen to me. When the what of your circumstances begin to completely crowd out and obscure your complete view of who God is in the midst of your circumstances, you will lose heart. 
and our own sinful flesh and our world is like a magnet that just pulls you down relentlessly to right here, right now. Right here, right now. And I wish I could say it's only unbelievers that are guilty of this. Your flesh still continues to want to pull you down right here, right now so that you just fixate on the latest trial, the latest trouble, and you lose sight of who God is. Now, how are you going to combat that? How are you going to keep from allowing your flesh to... You've got to read God's Word. CNN doesn't do this for me. Fox News doesn't do this for me. The History Channel doesn't do this. Discovery Channel doesn't do this. I've got Christians that push back on me when they're like, but I'm watching, not watching anything bad. I'm not watching nakedness. I'm not watching porn. But they're just watching endless hours. They're binging on Netflix and neglecting God's Word. And then they wonder why they're on an anxiety med and they're so depressed and they're so you will be. You must be seeing more than just your circumstances. God's Word was not just meant to inform us. It was meant to transform us. And it's almost like God's Word and God's Spirit and the people of God. Those three things you need in your life. Gathering with the people of God like this and singing truth. Having God's Word. When you, when you have this, it's like it pulls the lid off of this world. Everything in this world puts a lid on it. Like right here, right now. Right here. You don't see the Bible writers ever trying to convince the people of God that what they're going through is not hard. Did you ever notice that? And and, and did you ever pick up on the people of God are always going through something hard? The the best-selling Christian books did not get their theology from this best-selling book. They're still the number one bestseller every year. They don't bother to put it on the list because it's just every year. And it's so not like those other books. The people of God are always in trouble and always facing trials and always facing suffering. What's the answer? That you reframe your suffering and your trouble and your circumstances in light of eternity and in light of a sovereign, loving, wise God. It's the same thing you see the Apostle Paul doing in the New Testament. Jump over there to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You'll find the Bible writers reframing right now in light of eternity and who God is and what He's done. Reframing right now in light of eternity who God is and what He's done. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. In other words, Paul is saying... There's a temptation to lose heart. I even can be guilty of starting to lose heart. What do you do, Paul? What do you do? He's telling us what he does. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though the outward man is perishing. And I love that Greek word. The Greek word right there literally means being disabled. Uh, If you keep living life, you're going to find Advil has me propped up right now for you. It's like, yes, my lower back, my Achilles heels, my left shoulder, like... I'm being disabled every year. I can do less. I can, I'm going slower. I, need, I went to bed last night at 8.20. I know some of you are like, what? And it felt good. You can go to sleep. Oh, yes. Yes, I'm being disabled. Even though the outward man is perishing. Oh, look at this good news. Yet, the inward man is being renewed. One and done? Oh, day by day. Now he's going to begin to reframe it for our, what kind of affliction? Light. You say, Paul, you don't know what I'm going through. He doesn't have to. Whatever you're going through in this world, it's temporary. And your biggest problem has been solved by Jesus who pushed back the wrath of God and drank it dry for you. This will end. Whatever it is, it's going to end and there is eternity. So when you frame it up in light of eternity, it's light for our light affliction. Oh, look at this. Which is, but for a moment. You say, I've had a bad marriage for 20 years. I get it. But 20 years is still when you frame it up with eternity. But for a moment. Oh, and look at this. Is working for us. We tend to say, oh God, this is tearing me down. This is slowing me down. I could serve you better without. God has a different opinion. Often the weaker we are, the more He's able to work through us in powerful ways. You heard it in our chapter that I read, verse 29, Isaiah 40. He gives power to who? 
the weak. Oh, he gives power to the super gifted. He gives power to people with the end time charts. He gives power. No, no, no. He gives power to the, say it, weak. 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 These things are working for us. Now watch where he goes. Afar. I love the Apostle Paul when he gets on a run and it's like he cannot even use enough qualifiers to build something up. If you're an English teacher, you just go nuts over Paul. He has more of run-on sentences than everybody, anyone in the world. But it's because his heart is just about to burst with what he's trying to bring you. He just keeps tucking another word in front of it, in front of it. Listen to this. It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, how are we going to have this perspective? While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. Now, this is not a stick your head in the sand and pretend America isn't blowing up. This is not a... It's not stick your head in the sand. It's tilt your head back and remember who your God is in the midst of it and that there is an eternity and this is a moment and He's working in this for our good and He wants to use us for His glory. That'll change what you think you could do next, even in the midst of shattering circumstances. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. You must know who your God is and where He is. That He's not outside of it. He's in it with you. He's in it with you. You're not an orphan. You've not been abandoned. But our human tendency is to, is to draw false conclusions he can't be with me because if he was with me, he wouldn't allow this. That's human thinking. We think everything God would do for us is good and easy and comfortable. And then good and easy and comfortable. That's not what you find in the scriptures. He's with you in it. You must know who he is. And that word know in verse 21 and 28, I'm back to Isaiah 40 now. And that whole Second Corinthians right there, tell your first service friends, that was bonus. They didn't even get that. Mm-hmm. Bonus. Back to Isaiah 40, verse 20 and t- 21 and 28, that word know is more than just cognitive information. It was, it was a Hebrew word that meant to know experientially so that you can trust and rest. Wouldn't you admit there's facts that you know and it doesn't change, it doesn't settle you down, it doesn't make you less fearful? You can sit next to someone on a plane that's terrified and give them all the facts in the world about it's more dangerous to drive a car than, a, than flying a plane and it doesn't change them at all. Unless experientially they get a hold of it and trust and believe you. We're supposed to know God in a way that causes us to trust God and rest in God. Do you not know? So you may say, yeah, I've been a Christian forever. Yeah, I'm not saying, do you know there's a God? James tells us the demons believe and tremble. Do you know Him experientially, personally? that you're willing to trust and rest in Him even when the circumstances don't make sense to you and you don't get a text or an email from Him saying, hey, heads up, here's what's going on. We always say, if I just had an explanation, I'd be okay with this. That's doubtful. But what you find in the Bible is you rarely see God inspiring the writers to give us more explanation of what's going on. He knows what we need. A greater revelation of who He is. That's what you're getting in Isaiah 40. And that's pretty much what the whole book of Job is about, right? Suffering that's inexplicable, doesn't make sense, doesn't seem to be this person, quote, deserves this, not fair. Job would love some answers. He, he takes God to task there, and God doesn't give him explanations. When he does finally show up in, in chapter 37, he just unleashes his own volley of 78 questions and says, where were you? Where were you? Where were you when I hung the earth on its axis? Where were you when I created ice and snow and storms and the antelopes and the whales and the oceans and the seasons until Job just finally says, I lay my hand over my mouth. He gives us a greater revelation of who he is that changes how you go through your circumstances when you know him. And that word heard, verse 28 and 21, 
Have you not heard? Is a Hebrew word for hear that doesn't mean it's just bouncing off your auditory nerves, right? We hear stuff often. Think about how you'll talk to someone when you really don't care about what they're saying and they're going on. No, 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 no. I hear you, hear you, I hear you. That's, that's a euphemism for shut up. I don't care, right? Do you hear their voice? Yes. Is it making any impact on you? And is it going to change what you do next? No. You can be guilty of living the Christian life and you know factoids about God and you hear stuff about God and it's not changing you at all. Have you not known experientially? Have you not heard? The word is, a, is to mean to hear something in a way that you grasp it so that it changes what you do next. Changes what you do next. Changes what you do next. So what are some of the things that we should know experientially and hear, get a hold of from this chapter? Well, look at how God's power and authority are never frustrated by the decisions of earthly rulers. Is that not one of our top frustrations in uh, 2020? That was a big one, right? There's people in positions of power with authority making decisions that I don't agree with, yet their decisions impact my life. Hello, welcome to a fallen, broken world. This is not a new thing. It was kind of off the charts last year in a way that maybe we haven't seen, but this is not new. Human authorities with power making decisions that absolutely impact you. What are we supposed to think as Christians? Well, this chapter reminds us of something that's very comforting that will help you lay your head on your pillow and sleep better. Look at verse 15 to 17. He says, The nations are a drop in a bucket. Look at verse 17. Nations before Him are as nothing. They're counted by Him as less than nothing and worthless. Look at verse 23. He brings the princes to nothing. Verse 24. He scatters them. He'll blow on them and they'll wither. And the whirlwind will take them away. I know, I know you're thinking, yes, so blow on them now. I want to see them whirlwind away now. I know. Have you ever noticed how God's timing is almost never ours? How often in your life, are you living the Christian life and saying, God, are you thinking what I'm thinking? That's what I thought. We're both thinking the same thing. And are you going to do it tomorrow? That's what I thought. That's when I want it. I love being a Christian. Is that how it works? He says in Isaiah 55, For your thoughts are not my thoughts, for your ways are not my ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, my thoughts are above your thoughts. My ways are above your ways. He's good. He's wise. But He does not function on our timetable. He's not in a hurry like we are. He's just not in a hurry. As soon as things get uncomfortable and we think leadership's bad, we're like, hello, do you see this? I see this. Do something. If you read your Bible, you'll just see God as the amazing, massive God of huge delay. Right? Even the people God uses. Moses rises up. Kills an Egyptian and like, I'm ready to lead our people out of here. Let's go. Puts him on the backside of a desert for a weekend. No? 40 years! Till he just sat with sheep. And he said, I can't even speak. And God said, perfect. Now I can use you. Right? Go speak to Pharaoh. 40 years. The people of God suffered for 40 more years. Right? That's our human thinking. They were suffering when Moses first rose up. You're going to let them suffer another 40 years? I don't have answers for all this for you. I just want to remind you, you've got to stop expecting God to be a God who thinks and functions just like you. Because if He did, He wouldn't be God. He'd be human. You don't actually want that. When we get before Him, trust me, it, you know, I hear people say, and when I get there, I'm going to ask Him about this, and I'm going to ask Him about that. i got a whole list. No, you won't, because you'll be on your face for about 100,000 years talking into the ground. And then when you do get up, it just won't. All things will be made clear to you, and you will understand He did what was best. He's wise and all-powerful, and He is not on plan B, C, or D for history. He is moving along what happened this year in our nation? What's going on in the White House? What's going on in the Supreme Court is not causing God on His throne to say, oh my goodness, I had plans for America. And now, 
or America. Now it's like, I got to shift. We end up shifting when people do things. God never shifts to plan B. He is God. And He is still accomplishing His purposes in the world and in America and in our lives. The authority and power of human rulers never frustrates the power and purposes of God. But notice, secondly, look at how God's love for His people is never diminished in the worst of circumstances. This is a great big God chapter. He's sovereign. He's incomprehensible. He's awesome in power. And if you're not careful, that doctrine can be come across a little cold. All right, great. He's sovereign. He's big. He's high and lifted up. He's powerful. Whew. Is He loving? Does He know me? Does He... We have tucked into this big God chapter also the evidence that He's personal and tender. Look at what I'm talking about. Look at verse 10 and 11. Right in the midst of this big God, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. People are like grasshoppers. Don't hear what He's not saying. It doesn't mean He doesn't care about people. It doesn't mean He doesn't care about the people in those nations and what's happening to them. He's just giving you perspective that He's not intimidated by the nations and He's so much bigger than you. But this big God absolutely cares about you and is a personal, tender God. Look at verse 10 and 11. Behold, His reward is with Him. His work is before Him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. That's our God. Yes, high and lifted up, but also personal and tender. To use two big theological terms, when you see these two different views of God, and both are true, don't let go of either end of the spectrum. Theologians talk about the transcendence of God. That's the aspect of whew, high and lifted up, incomprehensible, mysterious, sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing. If that is all we had, that could be a little cold. But then we've got all these places in the Bible that remind us He's eminent. The transcendence and the eminence of God. The eminence is what we celebrate intensely at Christmas, right? Emmanuel, God, what? With us. He's not outside looking in. Oh, listen to me. Christianity is like no other religion. None. I grow weary of the media harping on if you choose to be religious at all, they're all the same. Just choose your flavor. Such a lie. Christianity is distinctly different in a category unto itself because every other religion says, I'll show you the way. I'll point the way. And here's our list. Now go do it. I'll show you the way. I'll point you the way. Here's our list. Now go do it. Jesus didn't say, I'll show you the way. Jesus in John 14 said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes into the Father but by me. And He didn't shout it from the heavens. He took on flesh and came into our world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He kept the law perfectly and then died on the cross as the final sacrificial lamb once and for all. Sheep and heifers and goats and bulls and sweet grain never could fully wipe out sin. It just covered Covered, covered, and he gave his perfect life and death in payment for our sin and then rose again so that when you put your trust in him, your sin record is wiped out. Oh, but there's more. It's not just that when God looks at you, it's blank. And his perfect righteousness is imputed and given to you as if it's yours now. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. That's why the Apostle Paul more than 35 times in Ephesians said, in Christ, in Christ. In... We're in Christ. When God the Father looks at you, He sees you in His Son. And His Son, Hebrews tells us, the book of Hebrews, stands interceding for you day and night as the great high priest saying, she's mine, Father. I know she still looks like a mess. She's mine. 
She's mine. He's mine. He's mine. She's mine. No other religion like that. None. None. Life changing. That's what God has done for us. Don't ever be guilty of saying, I just need to, these circumstances are so shattering and so hard. I just, I kind of need to, show me something to remind me that he cares, that he's loving. Oh, listen. You look back to the cross to confirm that he's loving. God the Father gave his, not least favorite of a dozen sons, his, say it, only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God the Father, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father, not Satan, poured out his wrath on his son on the cross. That will, that's what Jesus was pleading about in the garden. He knew why he'd come, but his human nature, he was fully God, fully man. He said, oh, Father, if there's any, any other way, let this cup pass for me. What was he talking about? The cup of God's wrath. He had never experienced anything but blissful fellowship with his Father. He drank the cup of God's wrath that should have been poured out on you and me for us so that now we can be forgiven, made clean, made free, given a robe of righteousness and have the hope of heaven. Not because of how great we are or all the boxes we're checking off, but because we're in a relationship with Jesus Christ who lives today. Who lives. Oh, He's a loving, personal, tender God as well as sovereign and powerful. Look at two pronouns in verse 1 that drive this home to us. Two pronouns in verse 1. He calls us my people. And he says he's your God. He's not just a God. He's your God. And he says, you're my people. My people. My lambs. He's not just a God. There's a relationship and it's one that cannot be severed by shattering circumstances or the darkest foreboding future you might be facing. You must know God in the midst of shattering circumstances. But number two, you'll need to depend on God's Word. You'll need to depend on God's Word and be living for more than just this present moment if you're going to keep from losing heart. Look at how God's Word is said in contrast to the frailty of human. We've got God's power and authority set in the contrast to the frailty of human power. Now we've got God's Word set in the contrast to the frailty of human beings. Look at it in verse 6. All flesh is grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. People are grass. Grass withers, flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Other things come and go. And it's sad. It's just our human tendency when we face something hard, so often the first thing we reach for is our smartphone to text a friend, call a friend, meet with a friend, pour out our heart to a friend. Don't hear me saying that's a sin. God gave us each other. There is a ministry of encouragement with each other. But don't only be turning to a friend. Turn to God's Word. I can't tell you how many times I'll, I'll be trying to help someone who's facing really shattering circumstances. And I, I'm, I'm like, oh, where are you reading in God's Word right now? Number one answer I hear, oh, I'm just so discouraged right now. I'm not reading it at all. I don't say this, but talk to the hand. I can't help you. Like, oh, my word, you're kidding. That's the absolute worst thing you could do. And I get it. But let me tell you what's going on. Your flesh is saying, just curl up, shut down, can't do it. Curl up, shut down, can't do it. If you have to have a friend drive over and read it aloud to you, if you have to play it on an audio version that you can get for free on the internet, you cannot not have God's Word coming into your life during those times. God's Word is essential. Knowing God is essential. Knowing God's Word is essential. And oh, by the way, those two things are closely related. You want to know God? 
You need to know His Word. And as you get to know God, you love His Word. And these two things, it's a vicious cycle. I'm knowing God and I'm loving His Word. I'm knowing God and I'm loving His Word. And you don't just end up walking around like a big Bible on legs. I know so much Bible. Name a book. Nahum. I can find it fast. Who cares? It's not that you know so much Bible. Folks, when you are knowing God and you are knowing God's Word, it renews your mind. It transforms you. It peels the lid off this shrunk down little right here, right now world. And it changes how you view what's going on and what you think you can do next. Because this book continues to introduce God and bring God back into view and frame everything up against eternity. 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 Not just right here, right now. God's Word. So notice there's two directions we can see about God's Word in this chapter. You can see in verses 3 and 4. Look at how God's Word has already been fulfilled in the past. I hope you realize, guys, guys, as far as history is concerned, we are way down here. We are towards the end. We are in the last days. Since Pentecost, that was the beginning of the last days. We're way down here. We have an advantage over the people of God when Isaiah spoke. We can look back and so many prophecies and so much of God's Word that predicted, 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 it happened, 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 happened. In a way that's just mind-blowing. Every year when I read through the, the, through the Bible, I'm just struck again by some of those Old Testament places like in Ezra, where God says, I'm going to use Cyrus to send the people back, and Cyrus is going to pay for all of it, and Cyrus hasn't even been born yet. And Cyrus is a pagan king of Persia, and it happens. We have right here God predicting, Isaiah predicting John the Baptist coming and making a way for Jesus and proclaiming He's coming, He's coming 700 years before He was ever born in Bethlehem. And it happened. We look back to it now. But that's not all you get in this chapter. Look at how God's Word points us to the future in the midst of shattering circumstances. You say, what are you talking about, Brad? Look at verse 5. Because we know verse 5 has to be talking about something greater than the first arrival of Jesus because it says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Jesus is the glory of God. And when He comes this second time, the first time He came, a handful of shepherds saw it, right? And some wise men who followed a star. When He comes this second time, it's what verse 5 is talking about. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. No one's going to miss it. And Philippians 2 tells us every knee will bow. Democrats, Republicans, everybody, celebrities, athletes, musicians, you name it. People that you think are so powerful and such a big deal, imagine it. Every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is, say it, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now that doesn't mean everybody's getting saved. The Bible doesn't teach universalism. But it does teach everyone will know the truth and will confess the truth. But it will be too late. When He comes this second time, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. But finally, look at how knowing God and knowing where you're headed changes your ability to persevere. You realize so much of the Christian life and if you read your New Testament, it's about not doing amazing, flashy things. That's how our, we think in our culture, especially in America. Amazing and flashy. Amazing and flashy. The Bible is all about endurance and perseverance and finishing well. Endurance, perseverance, and finishing well. Look at how knowing God and knowing what He's done in the past already and what He's promising to do changes how you persevere in the midst of hard circumstances. It's in verse 31. Those who wait on the Lord. And I hope, you don't, I hope you know wait in the Bible. The Hebrew word wait isn't like, I'm in Jiffy Lube and I'm waiting. Waiting for that oil change. I'm wait. We, we tend to think of the word wait as a waste. It's synonymous with waste. I just wasted my time. That is not the Hebrew word for wait. 
The Hebrew word for wait is a posture of leaning in with expectation that God is up to something. Those who wait, now you've got to know him to know he's up to something. You've got to trust him to know that he's up to something. And you've got to know his word. But when you know those things, you begin to wait on the Lord. Those that wait on the Lord, what starts to happen? They shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They're going to run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. Oh, it's no mistake that this chapter ends the way it does. It's like God, 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 God. And then this verse gives us, and the Bible does this repeatedly, knowing God is never the end game. When you know Him, there are implications that change how you live. He needs us to live differently. Not perfectly, but He needs us to live with hope that's not rooted in Washington. With hope that's rooted in something outside of this world. With hope in someone other than a human being that could fail you. With hope in King Jesus, you begin to have your strength renewed and rise up. You can walk. You can run. You can soar. Because I think it's interesting. Look at verse 29 again. Because verse 29 gives us the qualifications for who can receive God's power. I don't know about you, but I find myself saying, I'm weak. I get easily discouraged. How do I get more of the power of God? How do I get more of God's power? He gives us the qualifications in verse 29. He gives power to, say it, the weak or the weary. It's the same thing Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians 12. That when he's weak, the power of God is made perfect. We have this we have this notion that God needs us to be on top of our game. We need to be strong. We need to be strong. i got to get it all together. i got to get it all together. I'm not saying just be a, a loser and a wimp for the glory of God. That's not what I'm saying. But he does not need you to get it all together and see how strong and self-sufficient you can be. Very often, some of the most gifted and able people do not, they're not used by God greatly because there's too much of them and they're too much in the way. He needs someone to be weak. God is not looking for people to work for Him. He is looking for people He can work through because they're weak and they know they need Him. And so they cry out and say, God, I can't. I can't do this. I can't do this. Just on a small scale, I'm not tooting my own horn, but I want you to know I'm trying to live this. As I get ready to teach, preach, counsel, whatever I do, I just relentlessly lift my hands and say, God, I can do nothing. John 15, apart, you're the vine, I'm the branch. Apart from you, I can do how much? Nothing. Oh, God, one of my favorite places also, it's in 2 Corinthians 4. I love to get word pictures in my mind. And Paul said, consider us stewards of the mysteries of the gospel and servants or slaves. And it's not the normal word for slave, doulos. I looked it up, it's huperetes. And it's a Greek word that means under rower. I got a hold of that. I was like, you understand what he's saying? That, that's one of those ships where there's a deck and the important people are on deck and there were these little guys down below with an oar sticking out of a slot who don't even know where we're going. And their job is just to row. And so I'll say, before I leave the hotel, I'll say, God, I want to be your under rower for Jesus on deck. I want Jesus on deck, and God, I will row. I'm really willing to row. I want to row. i got nothing. I've got nothing. It is not me. It put Jesus on deck because he said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. That's not just a good idea for pastors. be a good idea for you. Whatever you're doing, he needs believers in every field. If you're a pharmaceutical sales rep, if you're a carpenter, if you're a homemaker, Whatever you're doing, we need to row, be under rowers with Jesus on deck. Saying, I don't understand it all, God, but I'm going to row. I'm going to row. I'm going to row. Would you glorify yourself? And in my weakness, would you use me for your glory to make a difference? As I close, I want you to think about it. Did, did it ever occur to you, the sequence in verse 31, did it ever strike you as odd at all? Those that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll rise up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not get weary. They'll walk and not faint. 
We wouldn't have put it together that way. Human thinking, right? Doesn't it seem to make more sense? You'd say, they'll walk. And if you get good at walking for Jesus and you're reading your Bible a little bit, memorize a verse or two, and if you do it a lot, you start really reading and you get colored pencils and you circle verbs and and then you memorize a whole chapter of the Bible, you'll start to run. And after you run, then you get in the zone and you soar. I'm not down in the fracas. I'm not down there. I have found the secret of soaring. And then you write a book about soaring. Right? Those are the books. Everyone wants to know, how can I soar? I want to soar. I don't want to just walk. I mean, the way it's put together, you you start to think, they're going to soar. They're going to run. They're going to walk. What are we going to do? Lay down and crawl next? Like, where's this headed? It seems anticlimactic. You know what's really going on? God knows something about the Christian life that we are so slow to embrace. You ready? The bulk of our Christian life is comprised of just putting one foot in front of the other and taking the next step walk. But a lifetime of walking for the glory of God is far better than a little bit of soaring and then crashing and burning. I hope you experience some seasons of soaring. I've had a few. But I've learned to settle into the mundaneness, quote, and ordinariness and the messiness of walking, occasionally running, but I want to finish well. William William Carey, the father of modern missions, understood this. William Carey said this, quote, I can plod. That is my only genius. To this I owe everything. The greatest heroes of the faith are not always those who are soaring, but those who are simply taking the next step. Have you been guilty of just thinking or even praying, God, I want to soar. How do I just begin to soar? I'm tired of this mess. I'm tired of the struggle. I want to soar. Would you be willing to pray, God, if you'll show me the next step, that's all I need, I'll do it for your glory. What would the next step look like for you? What would the next, what's he asking you to do? And it might not even seem glorious. What would the next step? Oh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are not just sovereign and almighty, but that you are personal and tender. And you do not just call the stars by name. You call us by name and you know us and you gave your son for us. Oh, God, how we thank you for your love. That you who did not spare your own son, but delivered him up for us all, will also freely give us everything we need in the midst of shattering circumstances. Show us what it looks like to wait on the Lord, to lean in with expectancy that we know our God and we know his word that is forever. Use us in our weakness for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.